Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. The human history of Kenya, were we to know it fully, would certainly be one of the longer histories out there. On the continent's east, below the Horn of Africa, Certain simian ancestors of ours, such as Homo habilis and Homo erectus, have been found to have thrived there. Fossil records in the region show an abundance of human apes as early as two million years ago. Pre-human primates were there even longer, perhaps first settling in Kenya 20 million years ago. As early as 300,000 years ago, some species of human, possibly Homo sapien, began to develop traits we think of as human. Primarily, they started to make and use tools. Over a long Neolithic period, nomadic groups of humans came and went. Over time, the weather changed, becoming wetter and more alluvial, and hunter-gatherers began to stay local keep livestock and grow crops. Groups of Proto-Khoisan and Bantu tribes settled in the region. By the first century, there were cities along the coast, famed in the region for their ironwork. They traded with the Arabs, among others. I mention this as far too many histories. Glancingly acknowledge there were native people on the land. The history truly starts when Arabs colonised the coast in the 7th century, or perhaps pick up from the Portuguese arrival in the 15th century. The Portuguese almost immediately began warring with the Arabs for control of the land. Some accounts may start with tales of the explorer Vasco da Gama narrowly avoiding death at the hands of an unscrupulous Arab pilot. Those same chroniclers, my main source for this tale among them, are far less apt to tell how, in 1502, Da Gama attacked the Mira, a ship laden with hundreds of Indian pilgrims on their way home from Mecca. The explorer set fire to the captured ship, immolating 300 innocent travellers. That tale is too deep a rabbit hole for today's episode. My point, however... Not only is Kenya a land with a long, long history, only poorly acknowledged by writers of a certain era, it is a place where, by and large, humankind thrived for millennia. We do need to know, however. The British Empire showed up in 1888 and laid their own dubious claim to the region. In 1890, they set about building a railway through the land via Uganda. It was this task which brought Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson to Savo, Kenya in March 1898. Among his tasks, the construction of a stretch of railway through dense forest and a bridge over the Savo River. No one was expecting the sudden arrival of a pair of man-eaters days after Patterson's arrival. For the following nine months, the two lions, later named the Ghost in the Darkness, would prey upon the men building the railway. Only days after Patterson arrived, the first few imported Indian workers disappeared. Late at night, while everyone was sleeping, a sole lion crept into a tent. 
Seizing a sleeping man by the head, the lion would drag the man kicking and screaming into the forest, where the pair of animals would eat the hapless victim. Patterson, not atypical of a 19th century colonial, ignored early reports from the workers of the encroaching lions. The coolies, his wording, well paid as they were, must have fallen foul of bandits in a nearby town. And that did not concern Patterson. Also, if we're to take Patterson's account as gospel, the terrified men were convinced the lions were vengeful spirits of departed native chiefs who were opposed to the construction of the railway. All fairness to the man, he was right in doubting they were demons, at least. Three weeks after his arrival, an incident occurred he could no longer ignore. A Jamanda, one of his supervisors, named Ungan Singh, was seized by the throat as several other men looked on in horror. Singh attempted to fight back but was nowhere near as powerful as the lion. The following morning, Patterson, accompanied by one Captain Haslam, a guest of his, went out to investigate. Along the way, they came across several pools of blood where the lion had stopped to play with its meal. When they finally came across Singh's remains, they were greeted by a large pool of blood, scraps of flesh, several bones, and the more or less intact head of the unfortunate Jamanda. This, especially the terrified look on Singh's face, shook Patterson into action. For many nights following, Patterson took to perching in one tree or another, a rifle and a shotgun by his side. Come hell or high water, he was going to bag the lions. The ghost in the darkness, however, had the better of him. At the time, the men were split across several camps along the railway line. Whatever camp he was watching, the lions would attack elsewhere. Patterson would only get himself settled in to hear a blood-curdling scream several miles down the track. Daytime excursions through the heavy undergrowth came to nil. Although a number of daylight attacks did occur, in one case a travelling salesman narrowly escaped death when one of the lions took out his donkey, but got caught up in a rope the donkey was carrying. The rope tangled up in several oil tins, and the din of the rattling tins spooked the lion, giving the salesman time to scramble up a tree to safety. It would be a distraction to the tale to cover Lieutenant Colonel Patterson's atrocious refusal to pay the employees the sum agreed upon, or his unwillingness to take workplace injuries for what they in fact were. He was utterly convinced the men were lying to him about their capabilities and were constantly swinging the lead. Patterson was always ordering them back to work, injured or not, for a quarter of their previously agreed wage. Workplace relations reached a low point when several men conspired to kill Patterson and leave his body for the lions. Suffice to say, intent to murder aside, he was not a swell chap to work for. Add to this, the arrival of the lions was enough to send many of the men running for completely different reasons. In an attempt to keep the workers there and make the workers feel safer, Patterson had circular boma thick, thorny fences built around the work camps. The lions were not put off at all by the fences, and soon both lions took to forcing their way through the boma for a midnight snack. For those who remained, 
The following few months were terrifying. The ghosts in the darkness prowled from camp to camp. One night they raided the hospital. All the while Patterson spent his nights in the trees. A couple of guns constantly at his side. At times he tied goats to trees even left human remains where they lay, in the hope an easy meal would entice the lions. One night he recalled staking out a deserted camp, only to hear screams from the direction of the recently relocated hospital. That night the lions leapt the boma, eating an unfortunate water carrier, in front of the man's horrified colleagues. This brazenness was yet another thing that could be said of these lions. If someone had a gun and was nearby, gunfire, yelling, the clanking of anything metallic meant nothing to them. They decided this was the spot they were going to enjoy their meal. No one was going to disturb them. The aforementioned attempt to mutiny and dispose of Patterson in September 1898 finally brought them a little help. Those higher up in the organisation were called in to arrest the conspirators. Following the arrest and punishment of the mutineers, the top brass were suddenly far more interested in the goings-on in Savo. Patterson had, by this stage, built a cage, half of which held some poor railway worker or other as bait. The other half was a trap to contain one of the beasts. For several days, the lions ignored the trap, they did burst through a boma one night, however, picked out a victim and dragged the poor man into the jungle. For weeks, Patterson, now aided by several military officers, staked out several camps at once. The lines continued unabated, with increasing impunity. They had now taken to staking out the Savo railway station for a fresh meal. One night, the railway inspector fired 50 shots at one of the lions. The following day, the men went out to track the beast down. A trail was left in the sand that resembled a dragging limb. Had the conductor struck the beast in the leg, causing it to limp off? To their shock, the trail was left by a human arm dragged along the ground as the lion strode off. Towards the end of the year, the railway employees finally refused to go back out going on strike till the company built them lion-proof accommodation. For three weeks, work came to a standstill while huts were finally constructed. The district officer, Mr. Whitehead, also arrived with soldiers to help hunt down the lions. Three weeks of strike was more than enough disruption for him. On his late-night arrival at Savo Station, Whitehead nearly fell prey to a lion. He escaped with deep, long gashes down his back. The police superintendent arrived soon after with help. It would be Patterson himself who finally took down the lions. The first was shot and killed on 9th of December 1898. Patterson bagged the second 20 days later. The latter requiring 11 gunshots to put it down. At just shy of 10 feet, nose to tail, both were on the large side. As the mainless Savo lions often are, Patterson made several claims in his 1907 bestseller as to the death toll from, to quote, 
no less than 28 Indian coolies, in addition to scores of unfortunate African natives. To 135 victims, scientists examining the remains have more recently put forward a lower figure of around 35 victims of their reign of terror. But what caused this reign of terror? While the encroachment of the British into their territory to build the railway seems the most obvious answer, it ignores the fact locals lived nearby for millennia. Lions did occasionally eat a human, but generally avoided people and vice versa. The favoured meal of the Savo lions was zebra, wildebeest or antelope. One possible reason they turned man-eater relates back to Mr. Patterson's hero, Vasco da Gama. When da Gama and the Portuguese took notice of this region of Africa at the tail end of the 15th century, they were always on the lookout for slaves to import to Brazil. Brazil was their cash cow. Local slave labor was scarce. The conquistadors had brought European diseases like smallpox with them. These diseases went through native populations in the Americas, wiping out up to 90% of the population. Needing people to enslave, quite literally worked to death in the plantations and mines. They imported millions of Africans to Brazil. When the Sultan of Oman finally got the better of Portugal, expelling them from Eastern Africa in 1698, they continued the practice of selling slaves. On the island of Zanzibar, where sultans would reign and continue to coexist well into British times, a slave market flourished. 40,000 to 50,000 mostly Bantu people from Central Africa were brought to the island to be sold to wealthy Egyptians, Persians, Arabs and Indians. A third of the haul stayed on the Tanzanian island to replace the slaves worked to death that year in their own plantations. Many slaves also died on their way to the market, their bodies unceremoniously dumped on the way. One place which became a regular dumping ground was the Savo River. The British allowed Zanzibar to remain a protectorate, free to govern themselves, with only a handful of restrictions. Throughout the 1880s and 1890s, they finally cracked down on their slave trade in 1897. Did the start of the slave trade give the Savo lions a liking for human flesh? Did the end of Zanzibar's slave trade cut off the flow of the Ghost in the Darkness's favoured snack, forcing them to look elsewhere for an easy meal? Another possibility is the lions were simply following the principle of adapt or die. When scientists examined the teeth of the two beasts, it was noticeable neither had taken on a larger boned animal, like a wildebeest, quite some time. The expected wear and tear simply wasn't showing on their teeth. One of the pair, however, for the life of me I couldn't tell you of ghost or darkness, had three broken incisors, a missing canine tooth, and an abscess under yet another tooth. The man-eater would have been incapable of bringing down a wildebeest or zebra, and was likely in constant agony. Some poor, slow-moving human, however, was manageable. 
Patterson went on to do other things. He became a war hero in World War I, leading the Jewish Legion, five battalions of mostly Jewish soldiers. He also discovered a completely new species of antelope, the eland, only after shooting one, of course. He commanded a battalion of Ulster Unionists in Ireland, just prior to the First World War, saw action in the Second Boer War. Patterson was a prominent Zionist who argued for a Jewish state in Palestine. His final wish was to be buried in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu, a fan of Patterson, facilitated this for both his and his wife's remains in 2014. The ghost in the darkness suffered a somewhat less dignified fate. They were skinned, their hides becoming trophy rugs of Patterson until 1924, when he sold them to the Chicago Field Museum. They were taxidermied and placed on display in a diorama in 1925. You can still visit the remains of these remarkable beasts today. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. Love to see you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.